The following is a President's Chapel by Professor Joel Kim, President of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Well, friends, welcome to Westminster Seminary, California. Um, Today is the first day of our new semester. Usually on the first day, we mark this beginning by having a convocation with faculty members in full regalia, as well as students in the chapel. But this year is no ordinary year. It's 2020, after all. And so the chapel is empty. I am standing here with just a couple of my friends who are sitting here to encourage me. But the simplicity of this day doesn't mean that there is a lack of excitement. We are indeed very excited to begin our new school year, welcoming many of our new students and families on campus as well. We had a chance to hear from many of them last night as we had our virtual reception. Uh, We are excited to begin this year of study as we recognize that more than any other time, the need for sound and faithful pastors and ministers are present among us, and we are excited to begin that work of preparing these men and women for church's service. I actually have one more news. Um, This news is a very important one for us who have been committed to in-person residential education. Starting next week, Tuesday in fact, we will be transitioning from this virtual beginning to in-person classes. Many students will be joining us virtually still, but yet we'll begin this hybrid form because we believe and we are convicted by the notion that teaching and preparing for ministry is really a spiritual community building exercise. Uh, Having students in, in classes for the faculty members as well as for the students to interact with their mentors These are such an important element of what we do, and we're excited uh, to begin that process next week. We give thanks to the Lord for the changing positive circumstances that allow us to do so, and we continue to ask for your prayers for health and safety, for patience and understanding as we take steps in faith, although many things are uncertain and many questions abound, but also to give thanks to the Lord with great joy as he continues to lead and go before us. As we begin our new semester, we want to reflect upon his word uh, to uh, receive encouragement and an insight about how he's leading us. And to do so, we want to turn together to Romans chapter 8 this morning, a passage that many of you know so well from verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, at the heart of this beloved letter is a question. How can sinners like you and me be right with God? How can sinners like you and me be right with God? After a brief introduction, perhaps this is overly simplistic, but from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we are reminded that all have sinned, you and I included, and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans chapter 3.21 picks up by reminding us that apart from Christ, we were once weak, ungodly, and uh, and sinful, but in Christ, we are justified, receiving forgiveness of our sins and being called sons and daughters of God, children of God, and therefore righteous. And then chapter 6 picks up, and up to verse 30 of chapter 8, we are reminded that not only are we saved by grace— but that we continue to change into the image of Christ by grace. Indeed, God is at work in us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where Paul, the preacher, takes a pause. And he asks this very simple question when he says, what then shall we say to these things? It's not referring to just chapter 8 or the two verses preceding it, but he's referring to all the teachings of chapters 1 through 8 in asking, what then shall we say to these things? The question is a natural one. Paul is asking his readers to react to what he has said. He is not satisfied in having expounded the greatest knowledge of theology, but as a pastor and preacher, he wants his readers and hearers to understand what this means for them, and therefore what this means for us. There are four questions listed here after the first. When he asks in verse 31 in the second half, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Paul had said, who can be against us simply with no other words included, numerous answers might be given. One only needs to look at verse 35 alone to list out a catalog of hardships. Tribulation, perhaps? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perhaps danger, or even death itself by the sword. But the essence of the question is in the if clause preceding it. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that God is indeed for us. For us, he says. More accurately, this clause can be rendered, since God is for us, who can be against us? You know who God is, and Paul reminds us. Do you not know? Isaiah says, Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heaven and the earth. What does it mean that he is for us? Well, Romans chapter 8 in the previous paragraph reminds us of this newfound relationship that we have in Christ Jesus. In verse 14 and following, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, 
Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Every one of these verses speak in filial terms. Sons of God, verse 14. As sons, verse 15. Children of God, verse 16. Children, verse 17. This is so very different than how Paul referred to those outside of Christ in chapter 5 when he says we are weak, ungodly, and sinners. But now because of Jesus Christ, we have been made sons and daughters. Sons and daughters, we are told. Not foster sons and daughters, temporary, provisional, and probationary, as many of us sometimes feel, but that he is our father and that we have become his sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. If God our father is for us, who can be against us, Paul asks. And the answer is simply no one and nothing. But the questions build in verse 32 when he asks, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, Paul did not ask the question, will God not graciously give us all things? We could have said that there are many things that God did not provide, and certainly many things that God did not answer to our liking. An equivocal answer at best. But notice what Paul does say. He first points out the costliness of our redemption. He who did not spare his own son. Romans 3 reminds us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In saving us, God went to the limit. There is nothing more he could have given to us. We cannot know the pain felt by the Father and Jesus on that Calvary. Yet we can say this. If the measure of love is what it gives, then there never was such a love as God showed to sinners at Calvary, and there never will be. The first part of this verse makes the question possible. That is, arguing from greater to the lesser, Paul argues that all things will be given. Having given his son, everything pales in comparison in spite of our protests. And what he refers to here is for salvation, certainly, no doubt that Paul has in mind all necessary things to bring us home so that we see our Father in heaven as that hymn says, without a veil, one day we will be home because of Christ Jesus. But it's not only about our eternal destiny, but all blessings, both spiritual and temporal, that we need, that we may require in our lives until that day of glory, he said he will take care. This is the reminder to us. Not only is he for us, from greatest of objects to the minutia of our lives, he is in charge and he is in control. But this is where the third question builds even upon that. Verse 33 asks, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Friends, Paul does not for a moment deny 
that Christians fail and fall, sometimes in a very grave way. In fact, the second half of Romans 7 reminds us of our condition. People may differ on the interpretation of those verses, but he says, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. I hope that's not only me, or for that matter, my children. Often intentions are good, our actions fail. He also does not deny that there are many who does and will continue to accuse us. We can name several. Our conscience accuses us. Sometimes our even feelings cannot be trusted. The devil never ceases. In fact, the name Diabolus basically means a slanderer. In addition, we doubtless have human folks around us, perhaps even our friends, who delight to point an accusing finger at us on a day-to-day basis. But Paul denies emphatically, however, that any lapses, anything that we fail to do now endanger our justified status before God in Christ Jesus. None of the allegations can be sustained. The reason is simple. In this courtroom drama, No one is in a position to get God's verdict in Christ overturned. It cannot be overturned. You realize that one of the central issues of the Reformation was the recovery of the justification by faith alone. In other words, our status before God is not determined by what we do or how we perform. And this is an important one for our students, both new and old. Your performance in class... And this is not a a, a statement against seeking excellence and doing all that you can do. But here, it's not our performance or the grade sheet in your grade book that will determine your standing and status before God. But here, it's determined simply by the living and dying and rising of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and our faith in him. By trusting and believing in Christ Jesus alone for salvation, We have this peace with God. As Romans 5 reminds us, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Many of you going through the Reformation class might have heard of Martin Luther and his famous comment regarding justification. Um, fearing the Lord as a, uh, a, a, a believer and believing that his good life and good works is the way to God. He joined a monastery with its life of austerity. He said, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I, he said. Yet his fear of God as a terrifying judge never dissipated despite all his efforts, and until he read and studied the letter to the Romans. And in reading this part, we are told, how can a man be right with God? He answered by saying, I grasp the truth, that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. There is no one, and certainly nothing, that can overturn the judgment and now the new status that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As if to reach a climax, here Paul asks his final question in verse 35. Who 
shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Love is often underestimated based upon perhaps the the witnessing of the kind of love displayed among human beings. Um, Here, oftentimes, love is conditional. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. It's self-focused. And oftentimes, it's changing. Daily, our emotions can change. And the object of our love may change. But here, God's love is unconditional. It's sacrificial. And it's unchanging. It's mentioned twice here in verses 35 and 39. The love of Christ. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we're told, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And his self-sacrificing nature is shown when he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is not a denial of the difficulties of life, certainly experienced not only by Paul, but by many of us here as well. Paul was a realist who assumed that pain and suffering mark our lives on this side of glory. In fact, he says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, it's not even something he needs to explain. Everyone understood that on this side of glory, sufferings were present. On this side of glory, what Paul refers to as this present time, all of creation is marked by suffering, futility, and bondage in Romans 8, all resulting from sin. Thus, creation itself eagerly longs for freedom and restoration of God, Paul reminds us. Suffering is all around us, whether from weak and weakening bodies through illnesses and diseases, broken relationships and families often acute in our, uh, uh, in our homes, constant natural di- disasters, even those we, that we see even among us in our news, struggles with our daily uncertainties as we see the politics and policies all around us, questioning these things on a day-to-day basis. I am so distracted these days, thinking about all these things. We daily realize, however, through these things, that this world is not our home and that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Certainly not the Lord's intention. Thus, we live in weakness, verse 28 says. Living in weakness is not something to be ashamed of. That's who we are. We live in weakness. In place of order, we have disorder and rebellion. In place of peace, we have discord and brokenness. In place of health, we experience pain and illness. In place of life, we experience death itself. Can the sufferings and weaknesses of this life This present life separate us from Christ Jesus is the question being asked. The answer is an emphatic no. Paul dares to argue that not only will we overcome them, but he says we will triumph over these things. We are more than conquerors. But here's the catch. This is not our own doing. It's not happening by our willpower, our wits and wisdom our humor, our policies, or politics and politicians. But through him who loved us, we're told in verse 37. The climactic thought to which Paul rises in his fourth question is that no separation from Christ's love can ever befall those who are in him, in Christ Jesus. In case we are faltering or lacking conviction, he says this one more time. 
Verse 38, when he says, not we know, not perhaps, not maybe, but he says, I am convinced. I am convinced. The triumphant statement is a result of Paul's conviction that God is, God is more than able to keep us to the end. He is convinced that nothing, literally nothing, can overcome the love of Christ. He mentions every possible fear or hindrances ones you and I can think of, but will not be overcome, for Christ's love does indeed prevail. We lack many confidences as we look forward to the second half of 2020. As someone said, I think, to me yesterday, this is not an ordinary year, and perhaps that was an understatement of the year in many ways. We recognize that there are many challenges ahead of us, um, not only as individuals and as fathers, as mothers, as parents, but also as church, as seminary, as a nation, there are lots of questions still to be answered. But yet this truth in Romans 8 does not change. And we uh, go, bef- go each and every single take a-, a day, take steps of faith, not because we trust in our own strength or our willpower or the strength or the wisdom of others around us, but simply because we know that God goes before us. We trust in him and we are ever and utter- utterly dependent upon him. As we kind of summarize these thoughts and as we uh, uh, begin our new semester, for many of us as students and teachers, uh, overcoming many extraordinary challenges that are before us, perhaps we can remember the promises given to us in the Word, reflecting on the words found in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12. Our new dean of students, Reverend Chuck Tedrick, used the Heidelberg Catechism Q&A number one yesterday to encourage our students. I want to encourage us as a good Presbyterian by drawing upon the Westminster Confessions, the only paragraph found here on adoption. It says simply this, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, they are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off but seal to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We indeed are, those of us in Christ Jesus, are heirs of this everlasting salvation. As we take the next day, next week, next months, and years to come, may we stand in confidence not of ourselves, but in the Lord who promises and who keeps his promises. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom we live for and proclaim. It's only by him we have life. 
And as we live each and every single day, O Lord, our lips sing praises and thanksgiving to you for his life and death and resurrection has brought life to us and purpose in all that we do. We thank you for the gathering of many students from all over the states and all over the globe for us to study and to be immersed in the word. We truly love your word, O Lord, and we want to stand on top of it and proclaim it with boldness and faithfulness. For this generation certainly needs to hear your word proclaimed, your gospel preached. For all of us, O Lord, we need you. Lord, we thank you for the many faculty members that are here, as well as staff members who are working tirelessly behind the scenes. We ask for strengthening. We ask for growing wisdom for them to labor well and to labor with great joy, not because things are easy, but because we serve a great God who goes before us and who supplies all our needs. Lord, we lift up this whole year and academic year before us to you. We entrust them in your care. We ask that you will guide us, go before us, strengthen us, keep us from distraction by your spirit for us to be focused upon you. May we be ever and utterly dependent upon you always, coming before you in prayers and trusting, finding confidence in you and you alone. We're so grateful that we are pitied, protected, and provided for and chastened by you. And we hold on to the promise of Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we grow to be more like him through our studies here. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.